Hello, I'm Derek Doak, and you're listening to the Real Estate Investment Insights Podcast. For over 25 years, I've been serving the investment property industry, from preparing tax returns for property owners when I worked in public accounting, to creating multi-million dollar syndications as a commercial broker. Throughout my career, I've always had a passion for learning and teaching what I've learned to others. This podcast is for fellow brokers, agents, investors, and real estate syndicators wanting to learn from those that have done it. My goal is to bring value to you through the sharing of best practices and industry knowledge. Each episode is geared towards providing knowledge and insights on industry topics and trends. Please enjoy this episode, and if I can be of any assistance, please reach out to me at Derek at dokemail.com. Now enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another Real Estate Investments Insights podcast. I'm your host, Derek Doak. And today I'm honored and excited to go over what I think is one of the better articles that I've read in the last quarter. And this quarter being, I guess we're in quarter two now of 2023. And this was in the NAR Realtor Magazine. And the other, I guess, honor for this is that the author of it is a fellow CCIM, Michael Rom. And I read the article and it just really got me thinking around things around, you know, the mindset of acquisitions, the cycle we're in. Uh, the supply and demand, all these things. And Mike did a great job of recapping all this in this article. So I thought it would be great to get Mike on the show to walk us through kind of the mindset and thought processes to put this article together. And if you haven't read it, you should. And the name of the article, it's View the Whole Picture of Commercial Real Estate Cycles. And it's a really short read, but it's really deep. And Mike's got a lot of information to share on this. So I wanted to get Mike on the show here uh, and to do a podcast and just kind of talk through this. Um, and if any of you have not read or seen things that Mike has been a part of, it really does get you thinking because Mike brings more to the table than just brokerage experience. He also is a licensed um, appraiser in the state of Pennsylvania. And so kind of that mindset of looking at it from different angles besides just from the broker's perspective that many of us would look at it. So um, with me today, I want to welcome Mike. And Mike, if you don't mind just giving a little background about who you are, and then we'll we'll jump into the questions. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Derek. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, my background is, as you mentioned, is actually primarily appraisal, which is sort of ironic considering that I am published in the NAR magazine. Um, but you know, twenty percent of my business is brokerage, uh, roughly, I would say. And um, you know, I, I wear both hats. This article was certainly, you know, generated from the appraisal perspective, though. I wrote it in um, the I wrote it from the perspective of a realtor, but I the thoughts and and the uh, analysis, so to speak, came from the interactions that I have as an appraiser. So uh, by way of some background, you know, I, I graduated with three majors from Temple University, real estate, finance, accounting. Didn't know what the hell I wanted to do after college and uh, found the appraisal business, which wasn't introduced to me at all during uh, my time there. But you know, started working for a regional appraisal company. And uh, as of four years ago, I started my own commercial appraisal company. And at that time, I, you know, I associated with a company called Landmark Commercial Realty headquartered in central Pennsylvania. And we've realized a lot of benefits 
of being associated with a brokerage, you know, whether it be off-market information, just um, having interactions with brokers on a daily basis. I feel like our value proposition is unique uh, in that I do wear both hats and that we are associated with a brokerage. So hopefully that gives you some background. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think that's kind of when you think about what we're talking about here, which is the life cycle of real estate. And uh, and when you think about not just the asset class, as far as the physical tangible asset, but also just the life cycle through the psychology of ownership, right? And that plays a lot into it. I know when you were talking about in your article, you talk about the factors, you know, like the market psychology and how that affects pricing uh, and drives market. You know, many of us know that owner users will pay more for a property than an investor would in a lot of situations because they're putting their business there and they're fixing their long-term you know, cash flow out for owning a location and increasing some wealth through owning it. So it's that what's driving the markets in today's market. And part of the article, when you go into this, you talk about the submarkets and property types, because a lot of us get articles around national averages, right? Office isn't doing this. Retail is not doing this. Um, Industrial is doing this. And, but it kind of goes at a higher level and maybe talk to us a little bit about what your thought process was about taking that a little deeper and saying, okay, what does this mean to the submarkets or the things around the national statistics? Yeah. The, uh, the reason why I wanted to write this article specifically is that, you know, as an appraiser, I'm really picky about the language that people use and more importantly, the language that I use. But what I like to do is give my perspective on things. And, you know, one of the articles I, I wrote recently was about land value. People always talk about like, what's that vacant land worth? Well, as we both know, vacant land has various different development phases and entitlements and uh, improvement risk and all these sorts of things. So, you know, with going along the same lines is that, you know, I continue to see these national articles or uh, national publications about, you know, office space being at risk and um, or being having less demand, industrial booming uh, and, you know, what they weren't identifying is where these markets are and what class of properties uh, these these buildings are are within. So, you know, as I start out the article, I talk about how when we talk about property trends, what we really need to be specific about is what is the class of property first of all, and what submarket are we discussing? Um, I'm I'm in a small county, Lancaster County, in central Pennsylvania. I think our state has maybe 60 uh, counties, but there's no way that in central Pennsylvania, we're feeling the same effects as Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, let alone what's happening all the way out in California. So what I realized is I don't even understand why these national publications hang their hat on statistics. Um, certainly, we need to be more critical of the information that we consume and apply to the markets we serve and the clients that we serve. And so I just wanted to bring that perspective to light and uh, hopefully help people understand that we can't just make blanket statements and and apply them to the clients and markets that we serve. Yeah. And and and, and when you talk about those sub-market and the property types, I mean, we, you know, we're all feeling in our local markets on what's still continued to be a hot market um, as far as asset class goes. I mean, interest rates is affected across the board. But there's also regional banks that are either not lending or tightening up on the lending, which then again drives the market because there's less about access to capital versus people who want the property. 
So um, I know you talk about that as well in kind of the, you know, the physical and the capital markets, you know, kind of the, 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 the separation between the two or how they both affect valuations and the market conditions. Yeah. You know, I, I identify a few things here. You know, we're, we're talking about, you know, what, what external factors influence property value. You know, we got interest rates, you know, overbuilding or underbuilding, tax law changes, construction cost changes, population shifts, uh, economic growth related to, you know, jobs or other um, types of economic growth in a local economy, changes in buyer power or buying power or uh, the basis of the article, which is market sentiment. You know, at one point in this article, I write, if enough people in a given submarket for a given property type think that, you know, trends, uh, excuse me, I'm having some background noise here in the city. Um, but if a property value will increase or decline by 20%, it's likely that that trend is going to occur. Um, you know, there are some other constraints, as you mentioned, interest rate uh, and buying power and what have you. But it's really this perception of value that I think is not 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 often mentioned. Um, and I really do think that that market sentiment drives us through the four phases of the cycle. You know, you have your recovery phase, your expansion phase, hyper supply and recession. Um, that's that's what we call the fundamental market. But then I kind of think that this behavioral cycle is kind of happening concurrently and it's not always correlated. You know, um, you know, I think some sometimes people or I, I guess last year would be a great example of of a time period when there wasn't there was a lot of market activity in multifamily and um, and people didn't people were underwriting rent growth at 10%, right? To make the numbers work. You know, there was this fear of missing out that if people didn't get apartment complexes, uh, that they might be missing out on, on a lot of money, right? And and so the reality says that, or the historical trends, I, I should say, would suggest that that rent growth is not going to occur 10% year over year for five years or whatever their, their holding period is. So, you know, using that as, a, as an example, I, I would say that the the behavioral market was influencing pricing more than the the fundamental market in, in that you know in that time period. Yeah, and 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 we talked about this other day on the phone too. It's that whole subjective value, right? I mean, when you think about comps, and, and I do a fair amount of uh, broker opinion of values for clients, um, and especially those that are working with their wealth advisor or CPA or their estate attorney to figure out what is the value of the asset they currently hold in whatever capacity they need to report it in, whether it's their financial statements or, you know, for the estate plan. And what's coming out of this is with the comps and the values dropping in mindset, it makes it a little more difficult because when you pull the numbers together, just because the comps say one thing, the behavior of that buyer says another, right? So it's that subjective values you're talking about. It's, it's what's that consumer mindset, the consumer confidence, if you will, around that asset class. Is that kind of where you're going with that as far as the behavioral mindset of acquisition versus just supply and demand? Yeah, pulling, putting on my appraiser hat, you know, I, I would qualify every single transaction as what's called investment value, which is uh, a concept that's completely distinct from market value, which is what appraisers analyze in most circumstances. Um, market value, I define market value as sort of a, I loosely define, I should say, as a range of potential sale prices evidenced by at least two similar transactions. So, you know, in commercial real estate, there's not 
a whole lot of data that we can go off of for any given submarket or uh, yeah, any given property type in any given submarket. So really, you know, the term that I sort of coined in this article is inefficient price discovery. We're constantly trying to identify trends in, in any market in any investment market. Um, but you know, in commercial real estate, it's quite difficult to do that because the the transactions are few and far between. Uh, you know, if you compare that to maybe residential or even the stock market is the best example of how many transactions take place by the second. So there's really no disconnect in what what the value and the price of something is. Um, you know, every transaction is motivated by one of three things. It's motivated by personal investment criteria or collective cr- investment criteria. If you're going in with a partner, uh, tax implications or individual space requirements. So you know, out of those three things, you can see how every transaction is completely unique. And this is specific to um, to commercial real estate. So you know. In residential, I think you could probably say that a lot of that is emotionally based, and um, and so you see you see a lot of uh, you see a lot more deviation in pricing in commercial real estate. Yeah, it and we you you touched on it a couple of minutes ago, and that was kind of the four you know phase of a real estate cycle. And I know you know the when you think of like uh, Professor Glenn Mueller there at the University of Denver, um, the Burn School of Real Estate, and he has kind of his quadrant that he put together. And I know you included it in your article as well, but it really does hit home of kind of the mindset. If you're in acquisition mode, or if you're in this business, like we are to help our clients grow their portfolios, the more you understand these quadrants and where we are in the cycle in your local jurisdiction, the more successful you can help your clients be. Because then you kind of take away this, you mentioned earlier, that whole FOMO, you know, the fear of missing out. And the people that always come late to the party, whether it's buying stocks or buying real estate, are the ones that get hurt first and sometimes permanently hurt as far as their losses go because they weren't really understanding where that particular market was in the cycle. So maybe we talk a little bit about that, you know, those four phases of the real estate cycle. Sure. Yeah. Um I think it's really important for a lot of reasons, you know, um, one being the length of time that a list price might be relevant. Uh, You might also be able to talk about, you know, absorption rates for new or currently vacant supply. And you're you're constantly trying to to quantify, you know, how much run rate there might be or whether or not you're oversupplied, undersupplied. Um, You know, you're looking at sources of future competition. Uh, The cycle is really important for identifying your capitalization rate that might that might be applied to current income uh, yield rates, or even your expected rent growth during uh, you know a decline or uh, expansion period um, during your hold. So there's a lot of reasons why that's important, um, and and ultimately what we're trying to do is you know if we're do, if we're counseling you know corporate clients for instance, we're trying to set expectations for where pricing might be six to 12 months from now. And, you know, in, in such a volatile time, like we're in right now, uh, it's, that's difficult. Don't get me wrong by any means, uh, right now, you know, that the ability to do that is, is probably more difficult than ever before, but we really can be a valued member of, of a company's strategic operating plan, or, or even just anybody's personal investment portfolio when we can try to start relating historical trends to where we are currently and sort of also taking into account that consumer behavior. Because the reality is, if we can take advantage of 
people's irrational behavior. For instance, everybody's unloading office right now for huge discounts. Um, and I'm kind of doing exactly what I get upset at other people for. I should say in my market <laughs> for class B and C office, people are unloading a lot of that property for discounts. Um, if if we can try to put together some fundamental demand that maybe those prices make sense, you know, three years from now, or or or, or kind of we, we try to put together a feasibility plan that says, you know, we could get this thing for a huge discount. And we know that's going to bounce back and, you know, call it 24 months or 36 months or what have you. We can really take advantage of that irrational behavior that that the market is is exhibiting. And um, I think that's a great example of, of what's happening right now. Now, again, nobody nobody knows when office might recover uh, in my market or if it ever really will. Um, and that's the risk that you take as an investor as well, though. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, from a, from a due diligence or um, the idea of, of somebody who's go, coming into a market, you know, because one of the things I'm always looking to do is add value to the the brokers that listen for one, they can help their clients, but also for them to be able to look at their own business and say, okay, I need to get more up to speed on what's going on in my local market. And that could be whether it's going to the local municipalities to see what kind of uh, projects are on the horizon, whether it's, you know, putting in new neighborhoods, you know, pump stations. I know for me, I spend a lot of time going to municipalities to see what large developers are putting in large tracts of residence because I do a lot of retail. So I'm always looking for how many rooftops are coming in so I can, you know, pick up a little crumb around the area before those go in and put a little retail center. So what do you see like in your market uh, individuals do to try to get information around that the best they can to project out next year or two's growth in the market? Gosh, I think um I think the best thing to do is to, to try to have as many interviews as possible, um, trying to understand what companies are are trying to relocate in your market, what the needs of the users are, um, what, what expectations are for them in terms of long-term need um, or, you know, and how, and how they feel about the region might, might be important conversations you know, all of these things are nuanced, though. Uh, there's a lot of companies that might realize it, again, using the office example that, you know, we've seen a huge flight, if you will, to the work from home trend. And, uh, you know, that that's sort of uh, translated into less occupancy in, in B and C types of properties. Uh, Class A seems to still be doing really well. But the reality is, I don't think that we've had enough time to really project that trend out. Um, the you know the thing is a year from now, these companies might realize that you know production uh, has decreased, morale has decreased, um, and, and a few other factors that 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 aren't aren't at the top of my mind right now. But I'm not so sure that we're able to use what's happened in the last 24 months as a great projection of of what will be. Again, this is probably one of the most volatile. And uncertain markets that we've ever experienced, um, and and it's really difficult for anybody to make <laughs> a credible prediction of what's going to happen. Um, yeah, I think the best thing that I, the the best advice that I would have is to just you know stay on top of it with conversations amongst your colleagues, and most importantly, the people that are actually occupying the space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I know a lot of us are 
still talking to owner users who want to buy their location and, and they're sitting there saying, when one, you know, when the prices really drop, I'm going to jump in. And so we haven't seen a whole lot of that, you know, anticipated, whether it's wishful thinking, you know, big price drops, but you're 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 starting to see, you know, a few of the sellers who have thought about selling are now coming off of where they were price point wise, saying I'll come down some. And so it all depends on if there's going to be any forced sales in the market, which seems to be coming after you listen to some of the other podcasts of individuals that track, you know, debt ratios and defaults. You're starting to see more and more of that happening. So the anticipation, at least in the markets that I'm tracking, are going to be more from the forced sales than those voluntarily looking to sell. Um, yeah, I would 100% agree. I think, uh, I think. The difficult thing is with on the supply side of things, at least, and this is very similar to the residential market, is that you know, if you're locked into, um, in some cases, sub 3% interest rates uh, for commercial, it's probably more like sub 4% interest rates. There's not really a motivation to sell. Um, and you know, obviously, this conversation is nuanced between, like you said, investment properties and owner user properties. But when the time comes that um, your loan balloons, whether it be after five years or after seven years, or in some cases, 10, um, you know, there there's going to be a gap uh, sometime. And, you know, again, for some markets and some property types, there will be a gap. And at that point, yes, we'll probably see more inventory hit the market. Um, you know, I think we start to see lower interest rates starting in 2018, uh, you know, or in 2023, five years later, we'll probably see the first wave of that towards the end of this year is what I'm thinking. Um, and then maybe the next wave uh, happened two years after that. You know, during this time, there's a whole lot of things that could happen though with uh, the recovery of any of those different property types and whatnot. But um, yeah, yes, yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and you're right. I mean, the interest rates really didn't start coming down until that 2018, 2019, really 2018 to 2020, you started seeing the aggressive nature of the rates. Um, and for those who took the 10 years, I think, you know, they, they should be in a pretty good position. Uh, but if they took the, you know, the three and the fives and even the sevens, you know, there could be a little bit of a, of, of, of issue on the, uh, on, on the refi when the time comes. Um, and again, depending on the location, you know, as you mentioned, the, the markets, and then also the, uh, uh, the asset class itself. Um, and I think that has a, has a lot to do with it. Um, when you think of in your market, where are your investors going now? I mean, when you're talking to other brokers in the office and you're out and about talking to individuals that are thinking of investing in commercial real estate, what's kind of going on in your market, asset class-wise? I've seen this on both sides, as a broker and as an appraiser. I've seen I've seen a trend towards operating businesses. Um, not so much passive investments anymore. Uh, people have realized that pricing doesn't make sense relative to the yields that they'll actually be getting for a lot of these passive investments. And I think you and I both know that there's no such thing as a passive investment in real estate. But if you're um, if you're talking the property types that I'm seeing a lot of interest in is hotels again seem to be coming back. Uh, car washes are huge. Self storage is huge. Um, I'm probably missing a few RV parks. Um, is probably less so of a business, but uh, mobile home parks and whatnot. Um, 
Yeah, you know, I think this idea of being able to be hands-on and adding operational efficiencies and what have you that are sort of ancillary to the real estate investment um, are are an attractive investment alternative just because, like I said, the yields have been squeezed so much on the passive investment side that, you know, at the price point sellers want, it just doesn't make sense. So, you know, go buy a car wash and, you know, it's a much higher risk, you know, but if you do have some operational expertise uh, in that specific property type, then, you know, your yields could be two to three to even four times X of, um, uh, th- yeah, of what your passive investment would be in multifamily investment, for instance. Yeah. I, it, it, it's funny you mentioned that because I just started this week. Uh, one of the guys I work with on uh, a lot of uh, developments for primarily residential, um, he brought in another family member and they're doing senior home care. So it's in yep. home care because he's building houses and he got some lots left and uh, found out his aunt runs, you know, 24 seven home care facilities. And he ran the numbers on it. And it was like, it, it, you're right. I mean, it's, it's riskier, but it's, it, the, it's very lucrative from the, uh, from the, the, the business perspective and the asset. Yeah. And I think, you know, senior housing is one that I left out. That's, that's a great one. Um, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why municipalities would, would, be favoring that type of investment as well, or that type of development. Um, I'm seeing a lot of single family homes being um, converted, if you will, to senior housing or at-home care or something to that effect. And the reason why municipalities would like that kind of stuff is because it's a tax base. And a lot of times um, those people aren't consuming uh, the public benefit. So, um, yeah, I, I think that one's a huge one and an undersupplied one right now, considering that a lot of the boomer generation is um, is getting to that age. Yeah. And and, and back to your keeping it local, we uh, just recently, our state legislation here in Washington uh, passed the, I want to call it the overlay, if you will, that allows uh, developments up to fourplexes on all housing lots. I mean, there's obviously some things that go along that you have to meet in order to get there, but it basically is going to push away the local jurisdictions on what's allowed on that lot to saying that you can go up to a four unit um, if it meets some certain other requirements, but it definitely will open up more investment opportunity or reposition opportunity for some of those, uh, those houses in, you know, good locations that are close to amenities and so forth, but it's just a different investment in a different way of kind of working within the laws that are, uh, that are, that are going to be hitting on the books. Yeah. I mean, I'm telling you, well, we need some of those progressive people to come over to central Pennsylvania because uh, we're still obsessed with, you know, half acre, single family home lots. Um, and, you know, housing affordability is just, it's just not there. Uh, so I, we definitely need to be increasing our density and I can appreciate that you guys are doing that over there. Yeah, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how it all comes together, but that's kind of the, the the goal with it. I mean, I saw I read an article that we're like a million housing um, behind on our growth plan, so um, that's going to have an impact. But like everywhere, I mean, affordability. I mean, you know, unfortunately, there there's just not enough affordability for you know either first time home buyers or you know young professionals coming out of college that uh, you know want to stay in the area. So uh, hopefully that all gets addressed through all that. But um, Anyways, uh, well, Mike, 
I, I appreciate your time. Um, I appreciate the article that you put together. And for those of you who haven't read the article, I would definitely go. This is for the spring 2023 edition of the NAR magazine. And uh, and you could uh, you could find it at you know www.nar. Uh, I believe it's dot realtor slash create. I think that's their magazine. But uh, but it's a great article. Again, the article is view the whole picture of commercial real estate cycles. And the author uh, who's on the podcast here with me today, you know, Michael Rome, um, and uh, he uh, did a great job on this. And I reached out to him after reading it and said, uh, thanks for sharing. So uh, any last words, Mike, before we uh, we part ways? No, you know, I, I really just appreciate the kind words. It's funny, you know, as you're writing stuff like this, you wonder if you're just writing out in the great abyss um and screaming into the wind but um you know i i really appreciate your re- your time spent reading it and um loved the um the invitation to get on your podcast i'm looking forward to to, to hearing it back <laughs> yeah no did a great job and uh and everyone knows if you have any questions you can uh, reach me at derek at dokemail.com uh and if you want can't find the article you know just shoot me a note i'll be more than happy to send it over to you as well and uh, and you and you can take a read on it. Um, and one last piece I would add is if you haven't really done a lot of research on um, you know Professor Glenn Muir's at the University of Denver Byrne School of Real Estate, his four phases, his four phases of a real estate cycle, it really is good information. There's a lot of YouTube out there and so forth where he has interviews where he talks about it, but it really gets you thinking about where you are in the cycle in your local market. And it helps you kind of strategize when you're talking to your clients about investment opportunities uh, as it relates to where you are in that cycle based on other factors that makes you think. So uh, if you get a chance, I would definitely encourage you to uh, to look that up as well. So with that, I want to, again, thanks, Mike, for participating and everybody have a great day. And uh, I guess I want to say happy hunting as you look for opportunities. Thanks again. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you should have any questions, please do not hesitate to reach out to me directly at Derek at Dokemail.com. Again, thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a great day. Thank you.